Would you take your Bibles and turn to Psalm 69? we've been taking these psalms in order, these psalms of David, we see that in many ways the life of David was like a roller coaster ride, many valleys and many high points. And we've been looking at those high points where he has received victory and he paints a picture of the future kingdom that would be inaugurated by Christ. And then we get to Psalm 69. And we transition back to David being persecuted again and how he handles uh, the enemies of God. And David as being the one who's being attacked is being attacked because he is the anointed of God. And so for the next four Psalms, we're dealing with David being persecuted. And each one of these, as in the past, teaches us something about suffering how to respond in suffering, what our prayer life looks like in suffering, something about God's purposes being worked out um, in our lives and how we understand God's sovereign role in the midst of persecution or troubles or whatever trials we may face in this life. David shows us how to respond to these. And then ultimately, what we see in these Psalms is actually a full picture of Christ in which the psalm is pointing to. And so it was immediately in its context about David, but it finds its fulfillment actually in the life of Christ. In this one, you will note the passages that sound familiar by seeing them in the New Testament as I read through these. So Psalm 69, it's a psalm of David. I'm going to read the whole entire psalm beginning in verse 1. Save me, O God, for the waters have come up to my neck. I sink in deep mire where there is no foothold. I come into deep waters and the flood sweeps over me. I am wary with my crying out. My throat is parched. My eyes grow dim with waiting for my God. More in number than the hairs of my head are those who hate me without cause. Mighty are those who would destroy me, those who would attack me with lies. What I did not still, must I now restore? O God, you know my folly. The wrongs I have done are not hidden from you. Let not those who hope in you be put to shame through me. O Lord God of hosts, let not those who seek you be brought to dishonor through me, O God of Israel. For it is for your sake that I have borne reproach that dishonor has covered my face. I have become a stranger to my brothers, an alien to my mother's sons. For zeal for your house has consumed me, and the reproaches of those who reproach you have fallen on me. When I wept and humbled my soul with fasting, it became my reproach. When I made sackcloth my clothing, I became a byword to them. I am the talk of those who sit in the gate, and the drunkards make songs about me. But as for me, my prayer is to you, O Lord. At an acceptable time, O God, in the abundance of your steadfast love, answer me in your saving faithfulness. Deliver me from sinking in the mire. Let me be delivered from my enemies and from the deep waters. Let not the flood sweep over me or the deep swallow me up or the pit close its mouth over me. Answer me, O Lord, for your steadfast love is good. According to your abundant mercy, turn to me. Hide not your face from your servant, for I am in distress. 
Make haste to answer me. Draw near to my soul, redeem me, ransom me because of my enemies. You know my reproach and my shame and my dishonor. My foes are all known to you. Reproaches have broken my heart so that I am in despair. I looked for pity, but there was none. And for comforters, but I found none. They gave me poison for food. And for my thirst, they gave me sour wine to drink. Let their own table before them become a snare. And when they are at peace, let it become a trap. Let their eyes be darkened so that they cannot see. And make their loins tremble continually. Pour out your indignation upon them and let your burning anger overtake them. May their camp be a desolation. Let no one dwell in their tents. For they persecute him whom you have struck down. And they recount the pain of those you have wounded. Add to them punishment upon punishment. May they have no acquittal from you. Let them be blotted out of the book of the living. Let not them not be enrolled among the righteous. But I am afflicted, and in my pain let your salvation, O God, set me on high. I will praise the name of God with this song. I will magnify him with thanksgiving. This will please the Lord more than an ox or a bull with horns and hoofs. When the humble see it, they will be glad. Who seek God, let your hearts revive. For the Lord hears the needy and does not despise his own people or who are prisoners. Let heaven and earth praise him, the seas and everything that moves in them. For God will save Zion and build up the cities of Judah, and people shall dwell there and possess it. The offspring of his servants shall inherit it, and those who love his name shall dwell in it. This is the reading of the word of the Lord, and may he bless that reading of it. The language that David uses for his distress and his trials is obviously poetic language. It's graphic language. Uh, But needless to say, his suffering was real, and it's painted in the picture of a flood. Many times he refers to a flood that's overwhelming him as if he's sinking under a flood, as if he's going for his last breath, but his head is going to get over. And as he maybe sees a chance to take another breath, another wave comes over the top of him and overwhelms him. And so he just can never catch his breath. That's how David starts this psalm off. We don't know the historical context. Some say it was Absalom. I, I personally don't think it was Absalom because of what David goes on to pray in the, imprecaca- in the imprecation of this psalm where he actually calls for their name to be blotted out of the book of life. I don't think he would pray that about Absalom. In fact, if you remember after Absalom was killed in the war, David mourned. And was told by Joab, you better go out there and clean yourself up or you'll lose all of Israel for your mourning. Whatever it is, is David is surrounded and he's in a place that's distraught. And so what he does is he calls and prays to God for deliverance. And we see this prayer of deliverance in verses 1 through 4, where he speaks of the waters have come up to my neck. And the language here is that the waters have, are at his neck, but they're rising and they're continuing to rise. You can feel the panic in that, can't you? 
you can feel the desperation of it is knowing that there's a flood coming and it just keeps rising up. And, and, and the desperation of the sin situation is heightened when he goes on to say, I sink in deep mire where there is no foothold. I have come into deep waters and the flood sweeps over me. And so again, he's using the language of being drowned. This is what his experience with his enemies are, is that he is being drowned by them. Have you ever been attacked so badly that you feel like you cannot catch a breath? And when you think you're about ready to catch a breath, the floodwaters of trial and suffering just come back and sweep back over you again. If you've experienced any form of suffering in this life, maybe it's not the attack of an enemy, but just the overwhelming nature of life itself, then God has a word for you. Then God has a, has a response that, that is a, a biblical response, and the response that is in His word is what we see before us. Have you ever been to the point with where you're with David and you say, I am weary from crying out, my throat is parched. How many... How many mothers have cried out to the Lord for their children to call upon the name of the Lord to the point that they can no longer cry anymore? That's David's crying out now. You think of Constantine, or excuse me, Augustine's mother, Monica, crying out for her son ceaselessly until he finally called upon the name of the Lord. And the descriptions of her crying out is rather graphic to read because you see what pain she was in. David, This is David's pain from enemies that he is crying out to the point that he can't cry any longer. It's as if there's just nothing that comes out. He says, my eyes grow dim with waiting for God. And you, you can get the picture of tears and all of those things that are affecting a person physically. And that's what he says. But I want you to notice how this is, is David is not a desperate man in prayer. He's not an, oh, woe is me. Notice the language of verse 3. With waiting for my God. And that word waiting is waiting with expectation. So as he's drowning... And his life is collapsing in on him. What he says in this prayer is that he is praying with the expectation of hope. So even in the midst of a flood, David's not without hope. Though an answer is delayed, it doesn't discourage his prayer. I think that's important to see is that actually the turmoil he's in, and this is repeated over and over again to where it's almost like a broken record, it's the turmoil, it's the suffering that drives him to his knees. It's the pain of almost losing the kingdom and being unjustly attacked that builds his most intimate relationship with his God. And he looks expectantly with hope. David is not without hope. And neither are we. If we are in Christ, whatever befalls us in this life, we're not without hope, even in the most desperate situations. We have a constant and abiding hope in Christ, just as David did. 
Look at how he describes the enemies. He says, More in number than the hairs of my head are those who hate me without cause. And so an innumerable amount of enemies that he has. And you'll notice that he says it's without, without cause. And so what is it that's taking place as they're um, blaming him for something that he had not done? They're, those that are coming after him actually have no grounds for their accusations against him. Now, David isn't claiming that he's perfect. In fact, what you'll notice in verse 5 is he actually confesses that he's sinful. But in this situation, there is no sin on his part. Oftentimes, David says these words that I think if we were honest with our own heart, we would be uncomfortable saying, where he says, judge me according to my righteousness. Well, when we think about any turmoil that we're in, where we're facing an enemy, where we're being attacked, we, we often know that we're, at, at, in some part, some percentage of that, we've sinned in it. Our, our anger might not always be righteous. Our response might not always be what, what Christ would have us do. But David says here is that they hate him without a cause. And may that be our goal, is that we never give a cause for anyone to hate us. In fact, Peter even says this when he says in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 12, Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers... So what's, what's Peter saying here is saying you're going to face persecution, but when you face it, your conduct in the face of persecution has to be honorable. And there's an evangelistic reason for that. He says, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. In other words, your witness accompanied by your lifestyle may be a means of the proclamation of the gospel in someone's life that hates you. And wouldn't that be the greater goal? Is to see their heart changed? And so when David says he's without a cause, may we never be bring a cause for someone to hate us. And he, he goes on to say, Mighty are those who would destroy me, those who attack me with lies. And, and so, the, the, again, it's words, it's, it's gossip, even as you see the drunkards would sing songs about him and mock him. This is an attack of those that are coming after him with their words. He says this interesting phrase at the end of verse 4, what I did not steal, then I have to restore. And that, that's, a, that's a way of saying that their desire was to see David utterly destroyed. That's the attack he's facing. And then verse 5. This is following where he says, they hate me without a cause. He says, oh God, you know my folly. The wrongs I have done are not hidden from you. It's amazing because he just said he's unjustly blamed for the circumstances that he's facing. And so he's not backtracking here, but rather he's considering the condition of his heart. Let that sink in. As he faces an enemy that is primarily attacking him with their words with false accusations, it causes him to examine his own heart. 
So there's something we should take note of here is adversity, false accusations, uh, being on the wrong end of gossip. All of these things should lead us to examine our own hearts before God. In fact, whenever we do face adversity, we should examine our hearts before God. Even when situationally like David, we might be innocent. But look what David says, before God, who knows our heart, we have guilt. Now there's something important to understand, just theologically here and doctrinally. The Christian, by faith, is justified. We believe in justification by faith alone. And so that's a a legal verdict where God declares you not guilty. So there's that on the one hand, that if you're in Christ, you're no longer held liable for your sins. That's the wonderful, glorious truth of the gospel. But then on the other hand, we're told if anyone sins, he is to do what with those sins? Is to confess them before God. And we have a mediator, we have an advocate, the Lord Jesus Christ, and we receive forgiveness. So there's the fact that we are forgiven completely and fully in Christ, but there's also the fact that we are to confess our sins. Jesus teaches this to the disciples. After he tells them in the Sermon on the Mount, be holy as your Father in heaven is is holy and perfect. And then he goes on to teach them, forgive us our debts as we have forgiven our debtors. So those two truths are simultaneously true, is that you can be considered righteous, you can be considered justified, not guilty before God, but yet we still have to confess our sins and acknowledge it before God. And so what David does here in this prayer is he examines his own heart and recognizes he is not without fault. He confesses this to the Lord and says, Lord, you know my heart. And indeed, the Lord does know our hearts. Verse 6, he says, Let not those who hope in you be put to shame through me, O Lord God of hosts. Let not those who seek you be brought to dishonor through me, O God of Israel. This is an amazing and instructing verse because his fear is that him, that David being attacked will actually affect others. So look at what David is showing in this psalm. A love for God And when you look at verse 6, he's showing a love for whom? For his neighbor. He's actually, as he's facing adversity, now he turns and focuses on, on others that are related to him and somehow that are maybe on his side. He's now concerned about them. I think this teaches us how we ought to think about when we're being attacked because if we're facing opposition... If we're facing those trials, we focus on how it's affecting us. And we do that because we're, we're selfish, self-centered people. But what we see here in God's Word is, yeah, David's certainly concerned about how it's affecting him. He says, I'm drowning. But then he says, and shows a concern for neighbor and concerned about how it might affect them, and he prays for them. Let us think about that next time we find ourselves facing adversity, how we pray for those 
that might be affected by what we're going through. And he goes on to show this in a couple of different ways in verses 7 through 8, where he says, For it's your sake that I have borne reproach, that dishonor has covered my face. I have become a stranger to my brothers, an alien to my mother's sons. And there's two ways to understand these verses here. David's fear of God led him to publicly proclaim his sin. That's one view of these verses. Is that when he says this, for it's your sake that I have borne reproach, or, and I think this fits the context better, faithfulness will clash with, clash with unrighteousness in this world. And what do I mean by that? Well, Jesus tells us exactly what that means in Matthew chapter 5, in the Sermon on the Mount, in verses 10 through 12. And Jesus says, Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely. Remember what David was dealing with. His people are lying about him. He's not guilty for what they're accusing him of. And it's falsely on my account. Jesus goes on to say, Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. And so next time we face adversity, you just remember that, uh, for they, pro- they, they persecuted David, who was before you. Faithfulness will clash with the unrighteous of this world. And if you are faithful, it will clash. It could be something that causes you to lose friends. It could be something that causes you to lose a job. It could be something that causes you to lose a bank account. It's something that could cause you pain and even loss in family. And you stand for righteousness. Because the world loves darkness, but in Christ we are light. David goes on to say of his zeal, For zeal for your house has consumed me, and the reproaches of those who reproach me have fallen. You have fallen on me. And so hatred for God takes a target on those who love God. David loved to worship. And so because they hate God, they hate David. And I think that that's the point that Jesus was getting at. They hate me, so they'll hate you. David returns. He says, when I wept and humbled my soul with fasting, it became my reproach. So listen to what he's saying here. In my distress... When I was weeping, and I was fasting, and I was walking in humility, they used that as a reason to target me. He goes on, when I made sackcloth sackcloth my clothing, I became a byword to them. So when he changed to a state of mourning, physically, they used that against him to target him. He says, I'm the talk of those who sit in the gate and the drunkards make songs about me. In other words, wherever David goes, he cannot hide his face, but he's a man of scorn. Sound familiar? He's not one that we would be pleased to see. But they mock him. The drunkards sing songs about him. You can just have the mental picture of that in your head. How does David respond? But as for me, my prayer is to you, O Lord. Whereas they're mocking David, where they're talking about David, David 
simply just turns his heart to the Lord. And listen to the, the humility. At an acceptable time, O God, in the abundance of your steadfast love, answer me in your saving faithfulness. At an acceptable time, or in the time of favor, as it's sometimes translated. In other words, he's saying, but Lord, your will. Your will be done. And again, David's desperate, and God is not answering him. But David shows unwavering faith that God will answer his prayers. And he can say, Lord, in your time. And, and you'll notice how, how he calls upon the Lord. It's in the abundance of your steadfast love. Answer me in your saving faithfulness. He puts it back on who God is. In verses 14 and 15, he re- returns to the language of being uh, drowning and being in a flood. But instead of, instead of describing it, he now says, deliver me from it. So notice the language. It's different from verses 1 and 2 where he talks about being overwhelmed. Now he's saying, deliver me from these things. Deliver me from sinking in the mire. And he already said he doesn't have a foothold there. He says, let me be delivered from my enemies and from the deep waters. Let not the flood sweep over me or the deep swallow me up or a pit close its mouth over me. So David started the psalm by saying, this is what my situation's like. And he's describing that before God. He begins to describe his enemies before God, and then he comes back and says, God, rescue me from this. Do you think God was unaware of his situation? Was God unaware that he was desperate and what his enemies look like? Well, of course not, but yet he still recounts it before God in this very poetic language, and then comes back and repeats the same situation, but now a plea for deliverance. It's okay to go to the Lord and tell Him your problems. You can't escape that as a reality by reading the Psalms. That it's okay to go to the Lord and say, I'm being attacked. It's okay to go to the Lord and say, I'm having difficult troubles now. My trials are, over, are overwhelming for me. They're too much for me. You know, people oftentimes say, the Lord won't give you any more than you can take. That's a lie. He always gives you more than you can take because we're dependent upon His grace. If, if He didn't give us more than what we could handle, then we would be able to handle it on our own without God. Of course He gives us more than what we can handle. We're fully dependent upon God. He goes on to pray, and he says, Answer me, O Lord, for your steadfast love is good. According to your abundant mercy, turn to me. Hide not your face from your servant, for I am in distress. Make haste to answer me. Draw near to my soul. Redeem me. Ransom me because of my enemies. And as he calls for the Lord to rescue him, I just want you to see what he's doing is he's just praying Scripture back to God. And, and this is the language of God's revelation of himself to Moses in Exodus chapter 34, in verses 6 through 7. You're familiar with it. It says, The Lord passed before him and said, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, who will by no means clear the guilty. Now you hear David's language here. 
Notice what he says, for your steadfast love is good, according to your abundant mercy. Hide not your face from your servant. He's just simply praying back Scripture to God. What a wonderful model for us of prayer is to simply pray God's words back to Him. That's exactly what David does here as he contemplates and as he reflects upon God's nature. David knew his scriptures. David, as the New Testament tells us, was a prophet. He knew God's word intimately. He studied God. He studied the attributes of God. And when he would go to pray in a desperate situation, it's like the attributes of God just rolled off of his tongue because he was taught by God's word. And that became part of his prayer life and what directed the very words of his prayer life. He goes on to say, you know my, verse 19, you know my reproach and my shame and my dishonor. All my foes are are known to you. And so he's recounting again what, what God knows already, but what he's going through. And he says reproach, that is speaking of public and open disrespect that he's facing. He says his enemies are known to God. And then listen to what he says. Listen to the desperation in his voice. He says in verse 20, Reproaches have broken my heart so that I'm in despair. I looked for pity, but there was none. And for comforters, but I found none. I I think of Job where he says, Find comforters are you to his friends. David here is without comforters. He's looking for some sympathy uh, that is condolence. It's translated pity here in the ESV, but the, the NSAB translates it sympathy. Someone to commiserate with. Someone to speak with. But David's alone and abandoned. And that leads him to the best place he can be in communion with his Heavenly Father. And that his Father would provide for him what no one else was able to provide for him goes on to say in verse 21, they gave me poison for food, and for my thirst they gave me sour wine to drink. It's as if he's asking for sympathy, he's asking for help, and they say, here's poison for you to drink. David takes a turn here to an imprecation, an imprecatory part of the psalm. And actually, he unleashes a a brutal string of verses for God to execute justice. And as David calls and appeals for God's loving kindness, he in essence says, they do not deserve your kindness, they deserve your wrath. He says, let their own table before them become a snare. When they are at peace, let it become a trap. Let it catch them in surprise is what David's praying here of these people. Let their eyes be darkened so they cannot see and make their loins tremble continually. Uh, make them jump in fear at just the rattling of a leaf is what he's saying here. Pour out your indignation upon them. Pour out your wrath upon them. Pour out your anger upon them. Let your burning anger overtake them. That's quite a statement. Let's be reminded 
who the enemies of David were. When you recount the life of David and you see he had many enemies, they were enemies of God. And because David was the anointed of God, he was the king that God had chosen through whom the Messiah would come. Satan hated David. And it was as if the forces of the world were against David at times. When David's praying these things, he's not praying this imprecatory psalm against his neighbor that he had a little bit of a disagreement with. He's not talking about someone that they had um, a misunderstanding with one another. He's talking about evil, wicked men that oppose God's kingdom. So when we ask ourselves, when is it appropriate to pray this? Because we have to acknowledge this. This is God's word. This is our instruction on how to pray. So I would be uncomfortable to just say, Lord, pour out your wrath upon someone, on just anyone. We have to ask the question, if this is God's word, then when is it appropriate for us to pray this way? I think it's when we see wicked men that are attacking the church of Christ. Will not Christ protect his bride? Will Christ not pour out his wrath upon those that would dare assault his bride? Of course. And when the church is attacked, you think in places where just pure wickedness is poured out upon the church. Is it proper to pray this way? Yes, and and, and is it also not proper to pray for the salvation of those that attack? Absolutely. Lord, save your church, but if you're not going to save your church, pour your wrath out, out upon the enemies of your church. He goes on to say, May their camp be a desolation, let no one dwell in their tents, that is, may their line be cut off. He goes, for they, this is the reason, for they persecute him whom you have struck down, and they recount the pain of those who you have win- wounded. This is a very interesting verse, because David says here, they persecute him whom you have struck down. And there's a couple of different ways that people understand this, but uh, simply it's this, is that God disciplines those whom he loves, and it's a wound when he does it. And the enemy will use that as a way to attack. And that's what David's saying here. God as a father disciplines his children, those whom he loves. And David says the wicked are using that as an example or as an opportunity to pounce upon him. As the Lord is humbling David. As the Lord is disciplining him as he would a son. And so then he says this, is add to them punishment upon punishment. May they have no acquittal from you. You think about in the exile where God sends Babylon to wipe out or put, take Israel into exile and conquer them. And then what does he do to Babylon? He punishes Babylon. He closes with this in verse 28 in the imprecation part. He says, let them be blotted out of the book of the living. Let them not be enrolled among the righteous. This is a call for them to eternal suffering. 
David's prayer is a prayer that the wicked that oppose the kingdom of God would be blotted out of God's book. You actually see this in many places in Scripture. In Ezekiel chapter 13, verse 9, you see this interesting phrase. It says, My hand will be against the prophets who see false visions and who give lying divinations. They shall not be in the council of my people, nor be enrolled in the register of the house of Israel, nor shall they enter the land of Israel, and you shall know that I am the Lord God. What was God saying to those that would utter false prophecies, those that would fleece the sheep, that they would be blotted out of the book. Again, what is the, the cause for this prayer? Those that would dare go against the Lord and His anointed. Remember, David was chosen by God, the anointed of God. He moves from that to a promise of praise. I will praise the name of God with a song. I will magnify him with thanksgiving. This will please the Lord more than an ox or a bull with horns and hoofs. This is much like what he says in Psalm 51. When he says, For you will not delight in sacrifice, or I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken heart and a contrite heart. O God, you will not despise these. And then here he says it just differently, that thanksgiving and praise will magnify the Lord. And this will please the Lord, it says. In other words, this is what the Lord desires and look at the result in verse 32. When the humble see it, they will be glad. Who seek God, let your hearts revive. For the Lord hears the needy and does not despise his own people who are prisoners. What's David saying here? Despite all that I've gone through, the Lord hears me. I'm needy and the Lord does, is not blind and deaf to my cause. David calls for a universal praise. Let heaven and earth praise him, the seas and everything that moves in them. For God will save Zion and build up the cities of Judah, and people shall dwell there and possess it. The offspring of his servants shall inherit it, and those who love his name shall dwell in it. David is saying there is a future. There is a future realization of deliverance. Verse 36, of the seed of his servant shall inherit it. The offspring or seed is singular. And so David moves to the language of conquest fulfillment, which points to an ultimate and greater reality very practical things. I just want to point out two very practical things. As David faced trials and adversity, it brought about an examination of his own heart and a concern for sin in his own life. And so, in other words, David didn't say, poor me, I'm innocent. But David said, I'm, I'm innocent, but wait. I've got, sin in my, I've got sin in my life that I need to deal with. I've got sin that I need to take before the Lord. 
And so even though he was innocent in that situation, it still brings him to a place of self-examination. And then the second practical thing to see again is that he was concerned for how others are going to experience his trials. And David had followers. David had people that were following him. And so how was this going to affect them? How would this affect Israel? How would this affect those around him? How would this affect his family? How would this affect his friends? He's asking those questions, and then he begins to pray for those that it might affect. So as we face trials, let us remember that we're not in those alone But often what we're going through involves a lot of other people. And what can actually help us when we're in those places is is to actually just pray for someone else. And that's what he does. But there's something greater in all of this psalm, and I I know you've already seen it, and that is this. This This is a psalm of Christ. This is a psalm of the life of Christ. Let me, just, let me just show you a couple of verses, and I'll just read them to you. In John chapter 2, verse 17, we read these words, Zeal for your house will consume me, which is from Psalm 69, verse 9. You see in Romans chapter 15, in verse 3, where we read these words, For Christ did not please himself, but as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. Now notice what it says. Paul says, For Christ did not please himself, but as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. In other words, Paul says very specifically, Psalm 69 is speaking about not David, but about Jesus. And his trials that he faced... You think of John chapter 19, and I, I know you heard this when I read through it. In verse 29, a jar full of sour wine stood there, so they put a sponge full of the sour wine on a hyssop branch and held it to his mouth. Or you think of in the way it's stated in Matthew 27. Where we read this in verse 48. And one of them ran at once and took a sponge, filled it with sour wine, and put it on a reed and gave it to him to drink. In other words, what David foretold as a prophet of Christ, Christ experienced in its fullness. And how did Christ experience it in its fullness? David experienced it in one sense, but he experienced it as a sinful man. Christ experienced the persecution and reproaches of the people as a sinless man, as a perfect man. It's amazing that this psalm even foretells of Judas... In Acts chapter 1, in verse 20, they quote Psalm 69, verse 25, May his camp become desolate, and let there be no one to dwell in it. That imprecatory part that was prayed by David for the enemies of God 
it's interpreted in the New Testament as a prayer about Judas. So what does this tell us about Psalm 69? Well, Jesus bore the reproaches of his enemies. Jesus was truly deserted and alone when he was upon the cross. David, even when he was deserted by his family and lost much of his men that followed him, David was never alone. David's greater son, David's sinless son, was truly alone upon the cross, and his disciples deserted him. His friends that said, we won't ever leave you, were against him. His, his friend that said, I will follow you everywhere, lifted his heel against him. Jesus experienced a true forsakenness. If we've ever faced adversity and trials, forsakenness in this life, there's wonderful news that we have a friend in Jesus. In terms of salvation, we, we are never forsaken. But in our earthly sojourn, when we face forsakenness, we know we have a friend that knows exactly what we're going through but he experienced it in the fullest and most heightened sense possible. We will never face anything more difficult than Jesus did. And we have this wonderful truth that Jesus never departs from his own, but is with them, stands with them, and he keeps them as his own. That is the wonderful truth that we have in Christ that he bore reproaches so we don't have to. He took on wrath so that we don't have to. He was forsaken so that we might not be forsaken. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for the Lord Jesus Christ, our perfect Savior. We thank you for his perfect life lived and that he suffered in our place unbearable pain. Father, the mystery of the gospel is incomprehensible, but it is so glorious that you would send your Son, your perfect, beloved, glorious Son, to take our sin, a sinful, wicked people. It's beyond our comprehension, but your grace, Father, is greater than anything we can imagine. And we thank you that our sin can never outweigh your grace. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Would you take your hymns of grace?